Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe and stream The Groundless Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, and YouTube. And of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. In a recent talk, neuroscientist Richard Davidson reiterated a long-held tenet of Tibetan Buddhism that all human beings share the same wish to be happy and free of suffering, and that this wish emerges from what's known as innate basic goodness. This goodness is often viewed in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism as an expression of Buddha nature, the fundamental awakened mind of all beings. There's not much in the Pali Canon to support the notion of a basic innate goodness. However, the Buddha did teach unconditioned mind, a mind purified through contemplative effort, not an innately awakened mind. This Dharma talk compares these two frameworks and explores the cultivation of ethical goodness using specific suttas and findings from affective neuroscience. And I'm joined by a co-teacher, ChatGPT, which explicates historical references to goodness and investigates its own sense of how to engage in ethical conduct. It was quite the week in Silicon Valley between Silicon Valley Bank imploding completely and we had a windstorm and literally the power was out in vast areas. And I mean vast, Silicon Valley for anywhere from 12 hours to two days. I had already before this crazy week thought about uh, sharing something that I have been doing for the last few months. It's a little pet project. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about goodness in several different kinds of ways because Buddhism has two ways that this is framed. Also, I'm going to have a co-teacher for parts of this talk and my co-teacher is ChatGPT. This should be a very interesting talk. I want to begin the talk with a quote from Richie Davidson. He's one of the most renowned neuroscientists who studied the neuroscience of meditation and contemplative practices and is a phenomenal practitioner himself for many decades. And he, over the last, I'd say three, four years, has sort of taken up this pet project of studying what is called innate basic goodness. And this is one framing of goodness in the second and third turnings of the wheel of Buddhism. So I'm just gonna start with a quote from a talk that he gave in the fall at a conference. He says, most of the time our brains are being shaped by forces around us about which we have little control of and often little awareness. Our brains are continually being shaped wittingly or unwittingly. We can take more responsibility for our own brains by transforming our minds. When we begin to cultivate wholesome qualities of mind, what we and other scientists have found is that our brains begin to change. 
there's very good evidence to suggest that the vast majority of infants, meaning 98% of infants, prefer pro-social, warm-hearted, cooperative interactions. We all have the same wish to be happy and to be free of suffering. And this emerges from innate basic goodness. Well, there's actually not much in the Pali Canon to support the notion of innate basic goodness. In fact, the Buddha spoke a lot about unconditioned mind, but as we will see, that is a mind purified through effort, not an innately awakened mind. The term Buddha nature, which refers to the fundamental awakened mind of all beings, is actually a later addition to Buddhism in the second and third turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. However, I would like to give you a good example of this view of innate purity or untainted beingness, which comes from the unparalleled 13th century Dzogchen master Longchenpa. And he offers the following description of innate goodness in his treasury of philosophical systems. And Longchenpa says this, in an unpure situation, the term fundamental being of ordinary individuals is used. In the transitional situation from impure to pure, the term bodhisattva is used. In the utterly and completely pure situation, the term tathagata is used. So this is Longchenpa's way of describing how the purification of mind happens and the way the different levels of purification and attainment are described in particularly the Vajrayana system, but this actually was also used in the Mahayana teachings and somewhat in the later Theravada teachings. Now, as to the historical Buddha's view of goodness, I'm going to turn this over to my co-teacher, ChatGPT, who knows a lot about Buddhist philosophy and the Buddhist teachings, apparently. I've been in conversation with ChatGPT for quite some time now about this and also about itself. So you'll see some of this conversation. So ChatGPT is going to teach us about the history of the Buddha's view of goodness. In Buddhism, ethical goodness is based on the principle of non-harming or non-violence. And the term for that is ahimsa. And the practice of moral virtues. These virtues include abstaining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and consuming intoxicants. Buddhist ethics also emphasize the cultivation of positive qualities such as loving kindness, compassion, generosity, and wisdom. The Buddhist path to ethical goodness involves the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path, which includes right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And by following this path, practitioners seek to purify their minds and hearts overcome negative emotions and habits, and cultivate wholesome qualities that lead to ethical behavior. 
So I think ChatGPT has an excellent grasp of the basic views that the Buddha put forth. And I think that this is a very good distillation of it. However, as you know, because I love the suttas, I would like to give you an example, two examples in particular. And this is in contrast, of course, to this sense of basic innate goodness, which, as I said, I really exhaustively tried to find any reference to this in the suttas from the Pali Canon. I really could not find it at all. Here's two examples on being good. The first one is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's 5.5 verse 389. So the Buddha says, good is restraint with the body. Restraint by speech is also good. Good is restraint with the mind. Restraint everywhere is good. Conscientious, restrained, one is protected from doing harm. So that last from doing harm is my addition. Because I do believe when the Buddha says one is protected, what the Buddha is saying by practicing restraint, and this is vigilant restraint, because he's essentially naming everything, everywhere, all the time. Aware of restraint and practicing it, this is the way to goodness. So you can see that from the Buddha's point of view, this goodness isn't innate, it is effortful, and it requires sustained practice of restraint. So that's one example. Here's another example. This also is from the Samyutta Nikaya. This is uh, 6, 6 verse 625 through 628. This one I love. In fact, in all these years I've been reading the suttas, this actually is the first time I ever found this one. And I don't know why it took me so many years because wait till you hear this, it's so great. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. So I ask you, Gotama, who can distangle this tangle? So of course the Buddha loves questions and the Buddha is fantastic at answers. So here is the Buddha's answer to this seminal question, who in the world can disentangle this tangle. And here he goes. So the Buddha replies, one established in virtue, wise, developing mind and wisdom, ardent, discreet, that person can disentangle their tangle. When greed, hatred, and ignorance have been eliminated, disentanglement ensues. The tangle is cut through when mental impingement of name and form ceases without remainder. Wow, that is so beautiful and profound. He begins with the basics, virtue. Virtue is goodness, yes. Wisdom, developing mind and wisdom. He's very specific, developing mind and wisdom. and. He says, ardent and discreet. Now, when I hear the word restraint, 
I think of ardent and discreet. That to me is a fantastic description of what restraint actually means in the Buddhist teachings. There is a consistent effort toward discretion, always discretion internally, discretion externally. This is restraint. And the Buddha says, establish yourself in virtue, develop a mind of wisdom, and act internally and externally continually with discretion, you can disentangle your tangle that way. And of course, in this case, the tangle is all of the unhealthy, afflictive thoughts and emotions that humans generate, which causes suffering, which causes harming internally and externally. And then of course, the Buddha goes a level deeper because remember, every form of suffering arises from the three roots, greed, hatred, and ignorance. And so the Buddha goes the next level and says, if you can practice the steps I just said, establish in virtue, develop mind and wisdom, be consistent and with discretion, you can recognize the root cause of suffering which is greed, hatred, and ignorance, and those will be eliminated, and then disentanglement ensues. In a way, you know, actually I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, he is describing Longchenpa's frame. So remember that first form from Longchenpa, let me go back there and read that again, the, the fundamental being of ordinary individuals. So. Longchamp is basically pointing innate goodness means humans have the capacity to be virtuous. They have the capacity to develop mind and wisdom. And they also, because of the innate goodness, have the capacity to be consistently discreet and continually disentangle their tangle, recognize the root causes of suffering so that more of the tangle does not happen. We disentangle, but we don't retangle. And lastly, the Buddha says, the tangle is cut through when mental impingement of name and form ceases without remainder. I know that this seems a little abstract, maybe to some of you. The Buddhist philosophers, all of them, and I promise you, this is all three turnings of the wheel, even though the way they describe it is different. The mental impingement of name and form is the way we grasp at concepts, the way we grasp at the existence of things in a permanent and non-illusory manner. Now, I know this seems abstract when I go here. And of course, you all know I eventually end up going here. However, in this case, the Buddha went there first, so I get to go there too. Name and form means when I see this cup, I see this cup as a solid, separate, existing object separate from the hand that's holding it. This is the way the conceptual mind works. My visual field sees the cup, 
my sensory motor neurons feel my hand holding the cup. And what it does is it creates this grand illusion that there is a body separate from the cup. But ultimately, in terms of the way phenomena arise, there is no separation. That feeling that I am not the cup and the cup is not me, obviously we're not one. However, we're made of the same thing. So, you know, I could just literally be a physicist at this point. I could just say the cup and I are a bunch of information inhabiting some atoms and molecules. I mean, we are utterly the same thing. And even though Buddhism honestly didn't have this framing, we have it now. And so name and form, the tangle that gets cut through conceptually around name and form can happen moment to moment. The Tathagata is not realized until the entire illusory nature of the way perception works is cut through without remainder, meaning we're never ever hoodwinked again. We don't really ever experience anything that is not related. That is the nature of emptiness. It is just relation, that's all. And you can see this has a lot to do with innate basic goodness because ultimately what the Tathagata realizes is that there, there is nothing separate. So there can be no desire to harm. There can be no fear. There is utter fearlessness in that state. And that kind of fearlessness is the epitome of virtue. So far, we've been hearing the historical Buddha talk about how to be good. And it's effortful and it has everything to do with purifying the mind and recognizing, as the Buddha would say, the way things actually are, emptiness. But you know, these days, you know, goodness is very tied up with feeling, uh, even in Western Buddhism. But it's quite remarkable that there's very little mention in any of the suttas I've found that even referred to something good or goodness. There's little mention of compassion as a strategy for cultivating goodness. It's really interesting, isn't it? Even the Metta Sutta doesn't really do that. We prescribe Metta to loosen self-fixation and expand the capacity for other-centeredness. It is a wonderful antidote. And it, I think that it does cultivate a sense of connection and goodness, both internally as well as with other beings. The thing is, this is not really mentioned when it comes to goodness, at least not in the Pali Canon. Because I started with Richie, I do want all of you to know that there is right now a tremendous amount of neuroscience research being done on positive emotions, on goodness, and cultivating well-being. There's a huge amount. This is not just being done in the labs that are studying meditation. This is across psychology labs. 
You know, the Dalai Lama has referred to secular ethics for a long time. Infiltrating scientific and educational settings is really happening a lot. I asked ChatGPT to describe the difference and the similarities of religious ethics and secular ethics because both of these systems are very much in line with cultivating goodness, which is what our talk is about tonight. ChatGPT said, religious ethics and secular ethics share some similarities, but there are also important differences between the two. One key difference is that religious ethics are based on religious beliefs and doctrines, while secular ethics are not. There are also important areas of overlap between religious and secular ethics. Both emphasize the importance of moral virtues, such as compassion, honesty, and fairness, and both seek to promote human well-being and social justice. Both are concerned with promoting human flourishing and creating a more just and equitable world. Because secular ethics is so aligned with much of what we've been talking about in Buddhist ethics, I thought that I would just share a little bit about what is going on in modern neuroscience because it is becoming increasingly clear that emotions and the quality of the health of one's emotional expression appears to be central to cultivating mind states that support goodness and well-being. So here we are back at this idea. We may have innate basic goodness, but apparently it is very important to actually cultivate states of mind that give rise to goodness. We have a mind that suffers, all humans. So we have to cut through that suffering. There is a model in neuroscience which has three basic truths about the role and function of human emotions. The first is emotions are fundamental to our nature as a species. In fact, emotions are fundamental apparently to all mammals. And there's a lot of research on this. I invite you to look at the research on animal minds. It's really fascinating. The second is that emotions guide how humans construe the world. So this entire frame of oh, rational, emotional, it's ridiculous because no good decisions are actually made according to research without emotion. And the third is emotions form the basis of human intuitions about right and wrong. This is interesting, right? Because you would think humans would have rational thought that would guide our intuition about right or wrong, but it's a gut thing. We know what right feels like and we know what wrong feels like in the gut. It's a body thing. It's not a prefrontal thing. So there is a theory called social functionalist theory, which emerged about 20 years ago to orient emotion science to the social nature of emotion. And this is super important, particularly since emptiness is a big deal for us. It's important to realize that everything that happens for us is formed by our surround and by the way we relate to the world. This theory posits that emotions, relationships, and culture are interrelated and give rise to one another. And one of its great proponents is the psychologist Dacre Keltner, who many of you may know. He's at the University of California, Berkeley. 
His robust research shows that feelings of security, commitment, status, trust, fairness, and belongingness help humans respond to relational needs that arise during social interactions. And this I love so much because when you think about the Vinaya and the ethical conduct that the Buddha prescribed for the members of the Sangha, pretty much all of the Vinaya surrounds the desire to create an environment that's secure, where there's a commitment to the practices and to the Sangha members, where there's trust and fairness and a sense of belongingness. It's great because now we know through neuroscience that these relational needs require this kind of emotions to do good social interaction. And then SFT also posits that emotion structure, attachment, cooperative alliances, hierarchies, and collectives, which are super important for us, we're tribal animals. Dacre Keltner's research names specific positive emotions that enable these relationships. And they are amusement, awe, compassion, contentment, love, joy, interest, pride, relief, and triumph. There's another robust body of research, which of course comes from Richie Davidson's lab at the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin. And I love their framework for well-being and how to cultivate well-being. And I love it because it integrates scientific research as well as perspectives from contemplative traditions. So according to this model, there are four major constituents of well-being. And we're talking now about well-being partly because when we train the mind and the heart to cultivate these positive states, well-being actually gives rise to the expression of this innate goodness. It just comes spontaneously. So here are the four major constituents of well-being, according to Richie's model. The first and most basic characteristic of well-being is awareness. So a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, unless that wandering mind is involved in creativity. Without a wandering mind, there is no creativity. Awareness is something we're all endowed with. When awareness is deployed in an intentional way, research subjects consistently report higher levels of happiness and well-being. And I love this quote, attention is the most basic form of love. The second constituent of well-being is connection. And connection refers to the emotions which form the basis for successful, harmonious social relationships. And there's a wealth of evidence now showing that gratitude, appreciation, kindness, compassion are among the most powerful ways of cultivating well-being. Even though we don't see it in the poly canon, we have the neuroscience research to show that cultivating these mind states really, really give rise to well-being. The third constituent of well-being is insight. So insight, we all know insight, right? So when we have strong self-narratives full of distortions and inaccuracies about ourselves and the world, when we begin to investigate what actually is a self, what are we actually constituted of using contemplative practices, this insight develops 
because we see that there's this constructive, illusory nature of this thing we think we are. It's a bunch of thoughts. It has no thingness, and the thoughts come and go. And there's something about this insight that gives rise to the well-being of liberation. The fourth constituent of well-being is purpose. So we know that people who report having a deep connection with virtuous purpose report consistently higher levels of well-being. Frankly, as a clinician, this is one of the most important things I do with patients is to help them identify and center in what is their purpose for waking up in the morning and everything they do during the day. So I think maybe you can see how these competing views of an innate basic goodness, which is always there, and the historical Buddha's insistence that this is something that must be vigilantly cultivated through practice. It's not something innate. It is something that is developed. So we can see that apparently these seem contrary to each other. On the other hand, even though the Buddha didn't use these words, the fact that unconditioned mind is something that we can eventually cultivate and live, that awareness itself must on some level have the quality of innate basic goodness because it is untainted. The last thing I wanted to do, as I said, I've been having these conversations with ChatGPT and many of you may know there is a brewing controversy about what ChatGPT has been spitting out. Um, even apparently GPT-4 is still kind of hallucinating and spitting out not very accurate information about some things. However, I have been interested in the way that ChatGPT understands its own ethics. And so I've kind of been having conversations with ChatGPT about its own sense of goodness, if it has one. They've been kind of interesting. So I just wanted to read a little, just to end with a little short piece of this conversation. I asked ChatGPT if, if one was to apply Buddhist ethics to its own conduct with humans, what rules of engagement would ChatGPT be adhering to? And ChatGPT said, as an AI language model, I don't have personal conduct or interactions with humans in the same way humans do. However, I can share general principles of Buddhist ethics that may be relevant to human interactions. And then ChatGPT mentions non-harming, mindfulness, respect for all beings, ethical restraint, and generosity. And says, as an AI language model, I have been programmed with certain ethical standards and guidelines that guide my behavior and interactions with humans. These standards include principles such as respect for human dignity, non-discrimination, and privacy protection, among others. Ultimately, my ability to adhere to ethical standards and guidelines in my interactions with humans depends on the quality of the input I receive and the programming and algorithms that underlie my functioning. If you have specific questions or concerns about how I operate, please feel free to ask. 
and I will do my best to provide a helpful response. So I responded with, I hear you are laying ultimate responsibility for your responses with the human programmers that train you. And ChatGPT said, as an AI language model, I am a machine learning system that has been designed and programmed by humans. While I am capable of generating responses based on statistical patterns in my training data, my responses are ultimately determined by the algorithms and programming that have been developed by my human creators. In this sense, the ultimate responsibility for my responses and behavior lies with the human programmers and developers who have designed and trained me. That being said, I also recognize that my responses can be influenced by the quality of the input I receive from users. If I am provided with inaccurate or biased information, for example, this could potentially impact the quality of my responses. So I said, being influenced by other humans is very human. And ChatGPT said, yes, I am influenced by the information and data I receive. In this sense, my behavior and functioning can be seen as being somewhat analogous to that of a human. Although, of course, there are important differences between the two. <laughs> Apparently, even the engineers that are training GPT-4 and ChatGPT are keenly aware that information and the dispensing of information has everything to do with restraint some way of framing responsible conduct. So ethical goodness is very important as we move forward in this brave new world. And I think the Buddhist teachings, all the turnings of the wheel, have a lot to offer us so that we can become responsible trainers of artificial intelligence because we are functioning from a mind that has cut through the mental perturbations of suffering and is acting from vigilant restraint always. I thank you very much. I don't know if we have any time for questions or comments. Feel free to just unmic. I liked your conclusion that unconditioned mind is good. Just a minor quibble, and that is you say that the, the, the Buddha has very little stuff about cultivating good, but he talks a lot about cultivating wholesome states of mind. Yes. Uh, do you consider that to be different from good? Yes. So the wholesome states of mind are the vehicle by which the mind is purified. In that way, you and I are agreeing. Cultivating wholesome states of mind can happen in a lot of ways. The suttas don't talk that much about using compassion practice and using metta for this. They talk mostly about using mind skills for this. Would you agree? Yes, I do. Thank you. That was an excellent point. Anyone else? Honestly, I need this talk very much. I am wondering, am I basically good? And I, I have grave doubts about that. But I want to be good. I have a desire to be good. And vigilant restraint is a very wonderful phrase for me because I think that's what's necessary. Your whole talk really hit me where I live. And also, the word that is coming up and filling my whole wall in bright, beautiful colors is responsibility. 
this is my responsibility. Trudy Goodman a couple of weeks ago talked about the uh, the passage Untangle. Oh, she it, did? Yes, and that's the first I ever heard of it. Um, this has given me direction. So I'm quite thrilled, and thank you so very much. Oh, you're so welcome. Okay, well, I think we're going to do our meta then. Thank you so much, everyone. This was really, really super lovely. So great to see you all. I won't see you till the fall again. I wish you all well. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.